From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. We are cruising towards that tantalising long weekend. And I think some people are getting a bit sentimental in advance of that, including the Prime Minister. Uh, Yes. Well, this, of course, is because he's written about his admiration for Nigel Lawson, who passed away this week. I think a lot of people uh, have been digesting the news simply because he's such a towering figure. I think, Lizzie, that Bloomberg's own Clive Crook put it beautifully, that we should probably be calling it the Thatcher-Lawson years uh, because of his stature. Rishi Sunak uh, has written a piece in The Spectator, of course. Nigel Lawson was the editor. Lawson was the embodiment of serious radicalism, intellectual confidence that he brought to that job. Sunak's really writing in, um, in very eloquent language about just what he admired about Lawson. But what I think is interesting is what we can learn from what Sunak admires about Lawson, what it shows we can expect from Rishi Sunak Mm. as Prime Minister. He says that he hung a picture of Nigel Lawson behind his desk when he entered the Treasury as Chancellor. Um, He says that he really admired the way Lawson laid the groundwork for radical change, like when he built up built up the coal stocks to face off the striking miners uh, when he was in the energy department. Perhaps that's what Sunak sees himself as doing at the moment when everybody's saying that he should be more radical, more ambitious. Perhaps he's still building up his coal supply. I was actually quite struck by the covers of The Spectator that are attached to the piece. If you look at it online and the various coverage of Nigel Lawson Mm. at the time that he was Chancellor. Nigel's gift. Oh, I wonder if that was maybe a budget special. What to make of Nigel? Uh, The assessment, I suppose, kind of reminds us that, you know, politics is a... it's very transient and, and some of those stories coming back in a cyclical way. Yes, and I think that's exactly the point and really why so much is being written about it because so many of the issues that Lawson uh, dealt with uh, throughout his career are so relevant now. I mean, also he's a hugely long-serving politician and uh, former journalist. I mean, in some ways we are perhaps stagnating now. I put a question mark over that economically in the same way that Lawson faced in the 1970s. A lot of the pieces um, that have been written about this, about about his passing, point to the fact that it's easy to underestimate how much of a funk Britain was in after the 1970s. And also you've got other 
points, therefore, around the level of taxation that Britain should see, the level of regulation, the value of markets, the role of unions now, all absolutely fundamental at the time when he was Chancellor, but also, I would argue, fundamental to now. Yeah, well, there's this post-Thatcher consensus where, as you say, unions don't run the show. You've Mm. got low taxes. There's an acceptance that you need to control public spending and borrowing. All of that just became ingrained in the uh, popular political Mm. psyche in the UK. There's also a piece by Merrin Somerset-Webb, one of our Bloomberg Opinion columnists on the terminal, also looking at the lessons that can be taken uh, from Nigel Lawson for the stock market because, as you say, it's in a bit of a funk at the moment. Uh, She says that it's the time for the UK to ignore the forecasters, just as Lawson did. And as you say, uh, it, there are lessons in terms of low taxes, deregulation in terms of the city. For, for uh, Merrin, she says that for all that Sunak admires Lawson, she doesn't see much evidence of his influence. But as, as I say, I think Sunak's defence would be that he's still in the uh, laying the groundwork phase. Mm, and we'll have to watch and see whether or not he manages to uh, build any of that groundwork before we have an election, which is the <laughs> other point. But of course, it's not the only challenge that the Prime Minister is facing. No. So uh, this, of course, is that uh, Sunak has suspended one of his own MPs. This is the Conservative MP Scott Benton, elected in 2019. So it's a Times uh, newspaper story. They've been doing actually a series of stings, and this seems to be a fresh one. The Times caught Benton appearing to offer to lobby on gambling issues, basically in exchange for money. Yeah, so our UK politics reporter Joe Mays is on the line. Joe... MPs are banned from acting as paid lobbyists. Benton isn't exactly any MP. He's the chair of the betting and gaming all-party parliamentary group. Just walk us through what happened here for anyone who isn't familiar with the investigation. Yes, as you were saying, Scott Benson was approached by some undercover reporters from the Times newspaper. They were posing as investors interested in the gambling industry. And the investors asked, these reporters asked him, you know, what can you do for us that a PR company couldn't do? And Benson effectively listed various ways in which he could help them, such as tabling questions in Parliament, such as directly lobbying ministers, indeed, even leaking market sensitive information to them ahead of time. And then at this exchange, a fee was discussed that 2000 to 4000 pounds a month for you know a couple of days work and and Benton uh, agreed or nodded at that i mean nothing further happened benton didn't actually end up providing those services but simply offering it in that way he, he was offering to break the rules of parliament as you say on lobbying so yeah that's why what's uh, what's happened here benton has had the whip suspended uh, by by the conservative party he's facing an investigation he's referred himself to parliament's uh, commission of standards so yeah that, that, that that's what's happened uh, now, Rishi Sunak has taken a fair amount of political capital on having clean, ad- efficient administration, different to the one that brought down Boris Johnson. Uh, how damaging are stories like this for the Prime Minister? I think they are pretty damaging in that they remind the public of this issue of effective sleaze uh, in, in the Conservative Party. We had it with the Owen Paterson case last year, which and the poor handling of which by Boris Johnson effectively brought his downfall. Clearly, Richard Sunak is trying to avoid such a mess this time by acting swiftly, suspending the whip um, in, in, in this way. But yeah, Sunak is trying to get away from that perception of the party, which formed under Johnson. And, and yeah, this brings that all back front and centre. 
Um, on the question of these all-party parliamentary groups, um, though, I wonder what your view is. So these actually are groups of MPs, you know, who get together to discuss a certain topic. They usually have a focus, but they're not actually part of, they don't have any particular influence within Parliament, you know, that they, they aren't like a committee. So, but there have been kind of concerns about whether they could potentially be a source of influence. Do you think that is another thread of this story we should think about? Yes, I think it's a quite plausible next destination for this story in that these APPGs often have things like dinners and events, even trips that can be sponsored by companies, by commercial interests. And it appears to be a kind of grey area where lobbying effectively does occur in a way that is kind of slightly underhand and and, and not explicit, but clearly implicitly there is a lobbying that goes on there. And I think that it looks like the kind of area where we could see a clamping down on that kind of behaviour because it seems to be effective lobbying. So yeah, I think that Definitely APPGs will be looked at. I mean, kind of anecdotally, uh, some um, MPs sign up to APPGs because they like to go on trips here and there. It's it, To some, it's seen as a, a way of, um, you know, gaining mm. personally uh, in a way that's not necessarily seen to be directly helping your constituents. But Joe, even if it's a grey area, surely this is, just to put it into perspective, no way near as bad an issue as it is in the U- US with lobbying. No, we have a very different system here in the UK where, yes, like paid lobbying it just doesn't happen in the same way that does does elsewhere. Um, but we still have this culture, and the Benson case proves this, where MPs feel like they can do certain things, like you know, if they were to receive some corporate hospitality, they register it with the financial uh, register in Parliament, and then they feel perhaps an obligation to say, yeah, ask a question, without there being any explicit link between the two things. But it, there is that grey area which does exist, and and Benton's answers in that exchange show why that there's, there's this culture where it is seen as perhaps acceptable for some MPs to do that, and that's what I think Rishi Sunak and the public would like to clamp down on. What about the rules here, Joe? And is this going to be a case that the rules will be tightened up in some way? Is there a call for for greater or more stringent rules for anti-lobbying? You know, it's a discussion that we feel like we've been having for a very long time. Is there any sign of progress in that area? Yeah, I mean, we already saw the rules tighten up after the Owen Patterson case, where not only was paid lobbying that was already banned but also you were banned from acting as a kind of parliamentary advisor or consultant to a company and giving them advice on how they could influence the lawmaking process now mps aren't even allowed to do that anymore and that was a recent change but is there any call for a specific change in response to this case not yet but we might see that um i mean probably most likely rich sunak and so the party will just reiterate these are the rules we have to stick by them maybe the penalties for breaking them those might increase but there's no specific call for a change in the rules yet but it could come um, on the specific issue of gaming, I mean, it is, it is um, an industry that we cover at Bloomberg uh, and it is a pro- very profitable one, certainly in the UK, and has seen a vast increase also uh, in terms of uh, gaming and gambling um, online during the pandemic. So I think that this also, you know, taps into the fact that the idea of tightening up the rules in the gaming industry is really a sort of hot button issue. Um, And we are expecting the government to come out with sort of more detailed recommendations on this in a paper. Just tell me a bit about the kind of thinking around the gaming industry in the UK and, and, you know, whether there will be, people think there will be tougher regulation. 
Yeah, I think your calculation is completely correct in that at this point in time, the government is expected to introduce more restrictions around the industry, perhaps a, a levy to which we used to fund you know, kind of rehabilitation of people who suffer from gambling addiction. I think definitely the mood music has been towards more of a clamp down because of the growing recognition of social harm and indeed the ease with which gambling can happen now, whether it's on your smartphone or you know increasingly online and so on. So yes, that is that that mood music. And for me, what was so striking about the Benson case was that you know, we as reporters are always try to find out what's happening. So we know how market sensitive this information is. And here was an MP you know, offering just to kind of leak it directly to to to, to a private company. That was really quite quite striking to, to me. And yeah, so that, that's that's what the industry is expecting. But also the industry doesn't want that to happen because it could hurt their profit. And that's why this lobbying does occur. It's probably the most uh, kind of high profile issue where the government could move markets uh, when it comes to their decision making. And that's why there's such such interest from the industry to stop it. Okay, Joe Mays, our UK politics reporter. Thanks for being with us. Stephen, I have to wonder how much this is going to undermine that gaming regulation that Caroline was talking about and how big of a scandal this is. I mean, it's not helpful to Sunak, but when you put it in the context of Partygate, it seems small fry. Mm, certainly one to watch anyway for where that goes next. Um, next to an update on a story that we mentioned on the show yesterday, and this was the arrest of Peter Murrell, who was the former chief executive of the Scottish National Party and husband of Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, he's since been released without charge. Police had detained Murrell in connection with an investigation into the party's finances. Now, Nicola Sturgeon, meanwhile, has pulled out of a planned public event that she was due to speak at later today. These developments also a headache for the SNP's new leader, Hamza Youssef, uh, who's, who spoke about this yesterday. My first meeting as leader of the NEC uh, on Saturday uh, was to get the NEC uh, to agree to a course of action around governance, around transparency, because people are uh, do have questions about the party, about transparency, about our finances. So Hamza Youssef succeeded Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister only last week. Broader questions, as we heard from him there, now being asked about what sort of impact this could have, the investigation on the SNP's electoral fortunes, its popularity, and thus thinking about the electoral calculations for the UK as a whole. The SNP's dominated Scottish politics for more than a decade now. If their support were to decline, that could mean a big boost for Labour and Keir Starmer's uh, hopes to become the next Prime Minister. Yeah, absolutely. We'll keep you updated on uh, all of the uh, news around Scottish politics. But I also want to go to a story um, that we were talking about throughout the morning, um, actually. So the government mandated, if you remember, five years ago that companies with 250 employees or more had to report their gender pay gap. And so uh, that happens at the beginning of April. Everybody's been rushing around to analyse the data. The average woman working in the finance industry in Britain earns 26% less than her male counterpart. Uh, that number also has actually barely fallen in the five years that the date has been tracked since that government legislation became compulsory. Uh, so earlier on Bloomberg Radio, we were speaking to our reporter, Irina Angel, who tracks a lot of these stories around diversity and inclusion. She's been digging into the latest figures. Have a listen to what she has to say about how bad the situation is. So the pay gap has fallen by less than three percentage points. And that's after five years of companies reporting their gender pay gap. So what this means is that women in finance earn just under 74 pence for every pound that men earn. And for comparison, the average wage gap across the whole UK workforce is 13%. So it's double that in finance. And what this shows, of course, is that women are underrepresented in leadership positions in the sector. Yeah, I mean, women are earning more degrees in the UK than, than their male counterparts are. It seems kind of bonkers um, that 
you know that there's such a big gap but it is particularly affecting uh, you know sectors that we cover uh, banking uh, lawyers and, and accountants that's right the situation is particularly bad in the city of london uh, we looked at investment banks in the city for example at barclays uh, the pay gap is just below 40 percent and that investment banking divisions uh, in the uk at goldman sachs or jb morgan the pay gap is around 50 percent then I think the situation in the Magic Circle law firms is also very telling. So that's, of course, the law firms uh, that work the most with uh, with the city. If we look only at employees there, the pay gap for lawyers is 15%. But if we take into account partner pay, we see women earn 60% less than men. And, of course, that's due to a disparity between more women. You know, there there are more women, but they're, they are joining junior legal roles, while men still dominate the high-paying uh, partner seats. Yeah, so it doesn't look like women are getting more into those leadership roles then? No, that's right. Progress has been very slow in getting women in leadership roles. Um, we've had some numbers uh, recently which show that the share of female leaders across top financial firms increased just two percentage points to 35%. And, you know, at the current pace, it will take 15 years for us to see as many women as men at senior levels in UK finance. Okay. Well, actually, that's that's not as bad as we have had in past yeah, years. Yeah, we were thirty. Been yeah, yeah. Centuries it's improved or, a bit. Yeah, okay, improved a little bit. Um, but then there are, you know, and you and I have, have reported on this. We've collaborated on a number of stories around women in the city. Um, and you spoke to the thirty percent club. So this is the organisation that's focused on getting thirty percent of of board of leadership roles, you know, being being given to women. And actually, they're quite hopeful. That's right. Uh, women that we spoke to for this story said that corporate culture is changing. Um, now most firms have diversity and inclusion policies in place and they recognize the gender pay gap as something that exists and they are taking measures to tackle it. Uh, you know, from menopause support to electing at least 40% new female partners and other targets like that, uh, or other measures like linking executive pay to diversity, equal pay parental leave to both parents. Um, but we will see if these will be reflected in the numbers next year. So that was our Bloomberg reporter, Irina Angel, there talking to us a little bit earlier. Look, I, I just want to underline why I think that is so important. I know that we're talking about the high end here, kind of banking and finance jobs. But the whole point is we're in this cost of living crisis and women are doing incredibly well in educationally. And if they want to go and get these high powered, well paid jobs, uh, you know, they're, they're still finding that there's a big gap between them and their male counterparts. I think it's really you know worth making that point. Yeah, I thought it was encouraging, obviously, that you had childcare front and centre in the budget that we are finally talking about menopause in the workplace. When I reported on it a couple of years ago, it was absolutely taboo. It's normal now. But you have to wonder how long it's going to take for these changes not only to be implemented, but to, to take effect and have a, have a difference in this data. Yeah. And now to a major anniversary uh, that is happening this weekend in Northern Ireland. It has been 25 years since the Good Friday peace agreement was signed, uh, bringing to an end 30 years of conflict in which more than three and a half thousand people died, Stephen. The US President Joe Biden will be travelling to Northern Ireland and to the Republic of Ireland next week too. We have special coverage looking ahead to that visit on Tuesday of next week. But we wanted to give you a sense, first of all, some of the significance of this anniversary in advance of that 
our Dublin Bureau Chief Marwan Conium has written a great article with Alan Milligan about some of the young people who've grown up in peacetime in Northern Ireland, people who were born around the time of the Good Friday Agreement mm. and have grown up in the world as it changed uh, after the signature of that deal. Marwana joins us now. Marwana, let's talk a little bit about the, the legacy of the Good Friday Agreement first. An absolutely massive change in the region's history over the past 25 years. Yes, look, it really was a hugely historic agreement that many people didn't think w- would ever be possible. Um, it signed in 1998 on the, on the 10th of April. It ended 30 years of sectarian violence, which really have blighted Northern Ireland and the lives of people growing up in it. So the opportunities that it has provided by ensuring relative peace you know it hasn't been perfect but compared to what came before um it really did change the landscape um for people growing up there so it was hugely impactful um and of course politically it was also a complete sea change from what it, what had come before but yeah where you said it wasn't perfect of course it hasn't delivered for everyone and that's the point in your piece especially for some of the young people you interviewed Yes, so there is a sense. um, Ellen and I spoke to people who were born around the time of the Good Friday Agreement and, you know, who have no memories of the troubles beforehand. And there's there's an overwhelming sense that, you know, nobody is underestimating how much it did achieve um, and they are incredibly grateful for it. But there is a sense that perhaps what it promised wasn't entirely delivered. There are things uh, that haven't really progressed much perhaps you know that the the establishment was there but then we haven't seen things continuing to change Mm. for the better so one example would be integrated education um which was you know obviously touted as being an incredibly important thing where by that they were providing for children of both catholic and protestant communities to be educated together and at the moment, there's still only 8% of schools that do actually fall into that category. The majority of children are still educated separately. And, you know, those integrated schools have, um, there is now a, a new bill to provide some government support, but they have really been the product of parents getting together and trying to organize them. And so that in itself has meant that we've continued to have you know, quite separate communities, even if those divisions aren't as contentious, perhaps, as, as they used to be. So there, there's a sense of that having not been fully um, realised in the way that perhaps it, they would have hoped it would have been by now. Um, and, you know, there are other aspects um, where, you know, there mm. have been pockets of tension still. And particularly since Brexit, um, we've seen that the political Mm. system that the Good Friday Agreement established hasn't been able to, you know, we've seen very recently and continuing at the moment in ways in which it doesn't quite work or it is vulnerable. Um, And there's a lot of frustration amongst young people now that um, other issues aren't being dealt with, you know, beyond the traditional community concerns. 
Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting that you've done that reporting, speaking to young people. I mean, I was of a generation who remembered, um, you know, Mo Molum and John Hume and, and Jerry Adams at the time, you know, uh, of, of the years before the moment where Blair was, was elected and then this sort of extraordinary US involvement in that peace deal. It really wasn't something that at the time people thought could be solved and then it was. But as you have said, you know, society in Northern Ireland remains deeply divided and that is sort of deeply troubling now 25 years on yes so um, as I mentioned the schools um, and a lot of the younger people who I was speaking to you know some of whom would you know just out of university and they said they didn't really meet anyone from a background other than their own until they went to university and even then actually a lot of them said that people do tend to sort of stick to their own and of course there are lots of examples um some really interesting stories that i i heard you know lots of people from mixed marriages now um so we have seen a change in things that would have been inconceivable you know uh 40 years ago 20 years ago were happening and lots of people i spoke to now you know they they are in very integrated communities themselves but it is something that is not necessarily a given for a lot of people, particularly those growing up in um, interface areas, you know, those which traditionally saw um, a lot of the worst of the troubles, um, you know, so even if things are much calmer, um, they are still largely living in separate areas, going to separate schools. And actually in a lot of the cities, such as all over Belfast, um, there are still the peace walls in place. Um, which literally do divide communities and um, they do uh, close every evening, um, you know, uh, early evening and they don't open again until the morning. So, you know, that those divisions are still physically visible as well as ideologically there, you know, well, even if they obviously are not nearly as um, contentious, dramatic or dangerous as they once were. Mumana, briefly on the politics of the situation, we've talked many times about all of the efforts to try and get the parties back to work in Stormont. Is there any greater prospect for the restoration of the Stormont Assembly now? Well, yes. So the DUP um, have been sticking to their message that they feel that the Northern Irish protocol part of the Brexit deal uh, does you know, undermine the Good Friday Agreement, it undermines their position within the UK and they they don't accept even the most latest uh, uh, changes that have been proposed by the Windsor Framework. Um, they do, they are sticking to that message and actually other unionist um, communities, including the sort of influential Orange Order, you know, they are still being very firm that that's not going to happen. I think there are opportunities for resolution you know obviously there's a lot of hope that with discussion and negotiation something will be achieved i know that the other parties are very keen to get back into stormont you know as soon as possible um and of course joe biden visiting uh next week potentially you know it does also send a message i know that he's been very keen on seeing uh things return to normal um, and the, the Irish government is certainly very keen on that too. So it will be something that's discussed. Um, but I don't think that there's any guarantees of progress mm. at the moment. And we're not seeing any particular signs that anything's going to change anytime soon. 
Okay, Morwen Iconium in Dublin, thank you so much for bringing us uh, the latest on that story. We will bring you full coverage uh, of that anniversary and look ahead to Joe Biden's visit uh, on our next programme on Tuesday. That's it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that people can find it uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Now, we are off for the Easter holiday, but back uh, next Tuesday. This episode was produced by James Wilcock, our audio engineer, Marufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll have more on Tuesday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.